With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Brendan here. And before we get into this week's show with the brilliant Andrew Sullivan, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our online hub for regular donors. If you become a supporter today, you'll be helping to fund the best magazine in the world. It is only thanks to our supporters that we are able to keep growing and to reach more and more people. You'd be helping us fight back against the forces of wokeness, anti-democracy and eco-misanthropy. And for your help, you'll get a few exclusive perks in return. Supporters can leave comments on articles, get free or discounted tickets to events and get discounts on all items in our shop. So to find out more about becoming a Spiked supporter, just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. People in general liked gay people in part because we were the ones that said, don't censor it. We want to publish it. We want to put this show on. We want to say these naughty words. We were always the rebels. And now we're the censors. Yeah. And not only that, it is not the spirit of gay people. It really isn't. This is alien to us. We are not the Puritans. We are the resistors to Puritanism. And it's absolutely horrifying to see this great culture of rebellion, revolt, and free speech turn into a fucking church. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Andrew Sullivan. Andrew is a British-born, America-based journalist, essayist and author. He is one of America's best-known conservative commentators and has been described by the New York Times as one of the most influential journalists of the last three decades. He was editor of The New Republic from 1991 to 1996. He launched his blog, The Daily Dish, in 2000, and that blog was subsequently hosted by Time, The Atlantic, and later The Daily Beast. He has written for many other publications, including The Sunday Times in the UK, and he was writer-at-large at New York Magazine from 2016 to 2020. His writing can now be found at his substack, andrewsullivan.substack.com. He is the author of numerous books, and he was editor of the highly influential 1997 book, Same Sex Marriage Pro and Con. His latest book is Out on a Limb, Selected Writing, 1989 to 2021. So, Andrew, I want to kick off by asking you, I guess, what is a fairly broad question, which is, what has gone wrong with the world of commentary, analysis, essay writing, opinion, the kind of world that you have been a leading player in for a pretty long time? It seems to have become increasingly shriveled, increasingly shrunken, fairly intolerant. It no longer seems to have as much room for people like you and others as it might have done a few years ago. So 
in the round, what do you think has gone wrong with that world, which used to be a bit experimental and provocative, but now seems to have become a bit more closed off? When you say the world, do you mean sort of the established media that we we have, yeah. you know, like the major magazines, newspapers, etc.? Because uh, obviously the big development has been the emergence of Substack and yeah. a whole variety of other options for people to write. The question is, why was that necessary? Um, mm -hmm. And why have so many of us been removed from positions within those institutions that provided, I would imagine for them, you know, a kind of useful internal dissent, you know, uh, uh, the best way I can put it, because, uh, you know, I, with New York Magazine, which got rid of me, I never worked in the office, so I never had any actual knowledge of why. <laughs> so, yeah, I was never I was never presented with an actual accusation. I was never presented with anything I had done that required me to be fired. Um, they had nominated me for a Pulitzer the year before, <laughs> so it's 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 not that they didn't appreciate my work. In fact, my relationship with the editors there was very strong, but I was brought in by an editor I'd worked with for many, many years, for decades, uh, Adam Moss, who was, uh, a, was a genius. I mean, he, he made New York Magazine what it is. And he also, when he was at New York Times Magazine, he published some of my big pieces in the 90s and early 2000s, which really you can't imagine them running in that magazine today. Things like I wrote this big essay on the he hormone about testosterone. I wrote a piece actually called What's So Bad About Hate, which was an <laughs> attempt to completely uh, detonate the whole argument around a hate crime law, um, all of which he gladly published. He published a piece in defense of the pharmaceutical companies. In other words, this was in the New York Times magazine, appeared on Sunday in every upper middle class, middle class educator family. Uh, amazing guy. And he's the one that wanted me to come back to New York Magazine after the Atlantic. And and as the thing went on, I was there for four years, you know, it just became and he quit after three, which was really the beginning of the end. Uh he he quit because he he'd done it for a long time and he needed to move on. And then you began, but already you began to feel the pressure from exactly the kind of people that are exercising the pressure now at Netflix, for example, with Dave Chappelle, which is junior staffers fresh out of universities, full of the SJW uh, orthodoxy, who started to complain about my pieces by, not by countering their arguments, but by going to human resources, HR departments, and saying publishing this guy on these subjects, particularly the Me Too movement at that point, before the, the Floyd explosion, uh, rendered their workplace a hostile environment. And therefore, they needed me to be gotten rid of or they would have to quit. Happily, they, my editor called their bluff on some of this stuff, um, especially since some of them I had actually, and this was another flashpoint, I had discovered were being utterly dishonest with a particular story that they were running. And I, I wanted to write a piece pointing out the dishonesty, which he wouldn't let me run. But essentially, I, I didn't even work in that office. I've been in that office three times, and all I've done was see the editor and my own my own essay editor. So I didn't know them. Uh, I wasn't in their workplace, and I think that was the beginning. And then over time, the fact checking became essentially a process of having to defend every argument I make as opposed to every fact. 
then, then of course, the summer 2020 happened when the big purge took place under the auspices of the, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, where a whole bunch of people were culled, including me. When I asked the guy I trusted what was going on, he, I mean, and, he, and he had to sort of eventually say to me, I, I don't really understand, but they, these people do not want to work with people who disagree with them. And I think if you were to, and when they fired me, they, if you, if you, I mean, you notice that, uh, the explanation from them <laughs> didn't actually create any, actually conceded. I don't know whether we can have a quote unquote conservative in our pages ever. Mm-hmm. Now, given the fact that I'm a conservative that is in favor of aggressive policies against climate change that supported, uh, Hillary fucking Clinton, for God's sake, <laughs> uh, given that I had been a, really ferocious critic of Trump, given that on several questions, I'm pretty heterodox within a conservative framework. If they couldn't accommodate me, then who the fuck could they accommodate? And he even copped to that, the editor. So I think it's really about the ideological purification of institutions and the demarcation of new lines of what is and is not socially acceptable around the notion that speech inflicts direct harm on marginalized communities in ways that the traditional First Amendment and free speech advocates have ignored. In other words, this really is a decision about penalizing certain kinds of speech Mm. for entirely moral reasons. And secondly, to stigmatize people as immoral and wicked and racist and bigoted and transphobic and misogynistic and everything else they can do. I mean, I think I was accused of homophobia, which is, you know, not entirely untrue, but, but <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm only hostile to homosexuals more than is absolutely necessary. But, you know, I also believe in making fun and criticizing one's own team as well. So I'm just a writer and they just don't really have a place for unpredictable or independent writing anymore because they genuinely believe it oppresses people. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good uh, way to kick off this discussion. And I think th- describing it as the ideological purification of institutions is very apt and very right. Uh, and I wanted to uh, touch on something you raised there, which is the extent to which this is a generational phenomenon and a generational takeover, because it is, I am primarily talking about the establishment media here, particularly the bastions of liberal commentary. They seem to be suffering from this more than anyone else. You mentioned the New York Times. There seems to be a real palpable generational shift of intolerance at the New York Times. A similar thing is happening at The Guardian in the UK. There is a real tussle at the moment, especially over the issue of uh, gender-critical feminism, trans rights, and there's a real locking of horns over that issue where the young take one side and I guess the middle-aged or the old take take another side. So, so to what extent – you've written before how we all live on a campus now. So it's like everything feels like the horrible – shouty, intolerant uh, life that one can expect on the 21st century campus. Do you think it's entirely a generational shift or do you think there's an element of the cowardice of the older generations, which is like a red rag to these people? How do you see that dynamic playing out in these kinds of institutions? Well, what you found, I think, in those institutions, if you look at the campus wars of uh, the last few years, essentially the weapon is emotional blackmail. It's not really 
a thorough debunking of your argument. It is, again, the invocation of harm to various marginalized communities who are portrayed as monolithic in their views and universally hurt by by speech. And, and, and you can see the conflation of speech with violence, which is in the rhetoric and in the language, this new language, that it's a, that I commit violence every time I write a, a sentence, not just any violence, but violence against particular groups. And it worked. It turns out if you scream and shout and say you're in pain and in trauma and you can't function because someone said something you don't agree with about some core element of someone's identity, then because these universities have now also taken this extraordinarily new position of being essentially the equivalent of kindergarten or primary school teachers in which they their first duty is safety and comfort for their students. This is even more in American elite universities, which are incredibly expensive to attend. So they were also this huge leverage of mommy and daddy's going to take take me somewhere else and, and, and you're, you're, all the other mummies and daddies are going to see this. So there's that too. The constant, the refusal at any point to take a firm stand and say, no, we stand behind the traditions of this institution. The liberal elites, the people who I would call as liberal, not leftists, but people who we think would be left of center in policy discussions, but nonetheless support basic academic freedom and basic diversity of views, they could not bear the experience of being deemed one of the bad guys. In other words, one of the bad guys, not just in any narrative, but in this central liberal narrative of are you are you for the civil rights movement or are you against it? Are you for this or against that? Without any any real investigation of what claims are being made, which might be different than the past. And I think also there's this terrible fear of being, as they put it, on the wrong side of history. So in for these middle-aged alleged liberals, they were terrified of that particular. And one act of cowardice leads to another. And the greater and greater success of the emotional blackmail tactic then just gradually spreads and spreads. What you're seeing today on Netflix is a walkout, a big tantrum, essentially, a pissy tantrum on the grounds that you've hurt us, we're upset. And the response to that should be, in my view, if you're upset about a product we put out there, even though we put out plenty of products that you love and have actually catered to you, then you don't belong here. You are not in the right industry. You need to go somewhere else. Similarly, I remember an incident where a, a trans writer at well, Vox, which I don't know whether the Brits understand, Vox, Vox Media is big, uh, leftist sort of media conglomerate over here. And they, they also, and this is another factor of my firing, they also took over New York Magazine between my being hard and subsequently. So they were also a key influence. When one of their founders, Matthew Iglesias, just put his name to a list of signatories defending free speech that included J.K. Rowling, the trans staffer uh, went into an absolute psychological meltdown, and Matt has now left, I mean, believe it or not, 
Uh, and the editors took her side. They, they act like these teachers of progressive high schools that have office hours. <laughs> uh, they have surrendered authority to the students, especially students that they regard as marginalized, so that they cannot really be gainsaid. And so the temper tantrum, storming out of the room because you didn't get your way, uh, as every parent knows, if you reward that, <laughs> it will ramp up and up and up. Um, and, of course, then when these people get into bigger institutions, uh, they've never understood any other context. And this is yeah. quite new in a way. It starts in 2015 in a way. The other wrinkle in this is that that generation had an accidentally oversized power because they emerged just as the web was decimating the profits of mainstream media, just as the editors in those places were panicked, thinking, we don't know what we're doing. Uh, we don't know what the web is. We need to do this, that, and the other. And, and also, we're losing money, so we need to jump into the space as quickly as we can and have the young kids lead us there. And so they brought in a lot of these cheap, and that's the key thing, a lot of them were paid basically nothing, which helped the newspapers and magazines survive. And so they were deferred to because of the older generation's insecurity about the internet and because there were so many of them hired at disproportionate to any other previous generation to push out clickbait. What they didn't realize is that they were also coming in fully, fully fresh from a Maoist cultural education <laughs> and, and, and would treat editors the way they treated mommy and daddy or the equivalent of mommy and daddy at their precious elite colleges. And when told no, or when you first arrived, when I first arrived at any journalistic institution, uh, we were treated as if, you know, we had a lot to learn and sit down and shut up and here's a task. Well, this was just completely inc inc inconceivable to these people. And so, and once again, the leaders of those institutions then lost their nerve. Now, you add to that the victory of Donald Trump, and you put that in the whole mix so that now you have a figure in American politics that seems, even though I think this is a kind of grotesque caricature, but it's not without truth that, uh, that he represented exactly the white, heterosexist, oppressive tool that we now all have to fight. And so that also conflated the two things. That's a, that's a very useful outline of, of basically where we're at at the moment. And the relationship between the temper tantrum lobby and uh, the insecure, uh, cowardly uh, middle-aged people, I guess, or older people who, who run some of these institutions. But I wanted to, before we move on to, I want to talk to you about many things, including race and sex and gender and all the big issues. But before we get onto that, um, just on these young people who are moving into journalism, moving into organizations like Netflix, moving into cultural institutions, corporate institutions. Uh, you, you describe it as a form of emotional blackmail, which I think is a very good way of understanding the impact that this kind of behavior can have. It does essentially blackmail people, force them to genuflect to the new ideology, to give in to the demands of the, the new up-and-coming uh, uh, members of staff. But I wonder if the question I've always tussled with is how real are these emotions that these young people claim to feel? Now, I, I flip between thinking on the one hand, they're being very manipulative and using their temper tantrum as a way of getting what they want. 
And another part of me thinks that it might actually be something even scarier than that, which is that they do genuinely feel physically, emotionally, existentially harmed by Andrew Sullivan. Like they're not making it up that, that they really do watch Dave Chappelle stand up gigs and they are triggered. They feel ill. They feel uh, under attack. And I, I say this because I spoke at Oxford University a couple of years ago and someone asked me a question about rape culture. And I, I said, I had a problem with the term rape culture. Uh, I said, I thought it was a potentially censorious idea. It could give rise to attacks on culture and art and under the guise of, of protecting women from rape. And the person who asked the question started to hyperventilate, had to be assisted out of the room. I mean, this was a real physical manifestation of the phenomenon of triggering, I guess. So I wonder, do you think some people on in this side of, of the new politics are being manipulative in the way in which they use their emotions and others actually do feel that deep hurt when they encounter words? And what do you think we can do about that kind of problem? I fear, Brendan, it's the latter, <laughs> like you do, that these feelings are genuine. Mm. And when people with those very strong feelings walk into your office, and you're also responsible for them as an employer. This is what Ted Sarandos at Netflix was kind of saying. I realized people were hurting. Well, my response would be if they're hurt by this, they need to just grow the fuck up and get into an industry where uh, they will be coddled for the rest of their lives. But look, these, these were children in general. These are children of the upper middle classes, if not the, the full-on upper class. They have been told from the get-go that they're special. There's nothing that can... They've been told that the greatest sin of anything is to is to take into account someone's identity when you even see them. In fact, they're both trained to constantly see this identity and also be constantly aware of the terror of sinning against it. So there's that. There's the implication that anything you might do wrong is really not your fault, but a function of the system. You are protected by helicopter parents yeah. from any real engagement with a hostile or difficult world, you then are given this technology in which you never have to actually encounter physically, face-to-face, -face, another human being who might conceivably have a different point of view than you. So you literally have no uh, machinery to encounter difference of opinion. You are been taught, trained, reared to be utterly, by a function of parenting and a function of technology, to be incredibly emotionally fragile. Because the only way you develop resilience is confronting hostility and difficulty. That's how you learn. I mean, that's the only way you learn. And these, these children, and they are children at this point, they're adult children, have no ability to navigate that. It's, 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 it's really pitiful um, and can't look you in the face. I don't know if I've had this experience, but I've, I've you know, engaging in one-on-one -on -one conversations sometimes with students or people in that generation uh, who start talking about something. They may not even know that I disagree. I might be in a context that they don't know who I am or they know roughly, but they don't really know, you know. I'm world famous in Poland. I'm not, I'm not that. But what happens is that I will then tend to just ask a question. What do you mean by what's, what do you, what's a system? 
what do you mean by harm? What is your definition of violence? How many people have done that? What are the data on that? How many, how many unarmed black men were shot dead by cops in America last year? Do you know the number? Just these kind of questions within four or five minutes when they actually notice a pattern of skepticism in the questions, they say, I feel uncomfortable. I'm feeling uh, oppressed. I have to leave. Hmm. They can't sit in the same space as someone who might challenge this view of the world. And again, it would be nice to think this is the notion that it is either cynical or cynical manipulation or genuine feeling. I think that's not either or. Yeah. Children are brilliant manipulators. They are cunning manipulators of adults. And using tantrums does not mean that they don't have a strategy or don't see exactly what they want to do. They've also been told, and I think they've almost internalized, that they live under constant oppression, that that is the defining nature of human existence. And it's almost a qualification for humanity. And so there's also this desire to become victims or to copy victims or to reenact victims so that you gain social status and meaning. And then there's the, then the extraordinary context of the online media where you're also performing in front of an audience of your peers all the time mm-hmm. in which the dynamics of mobs, which is a very human thing, operate. And so it's a combination of all these things, but it is essentially, and in some ways I think we have to start talking about it like this, about a crippled generation, uh, about, uh, you know, people who, people who cannot function in, in a society in which there is any, any impingement on what they would demand as their emotional safety yeah. and comfort. Now, I had a similar experience. I went to a college and was asked to speak about the history of gay marriage. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot about it. I was very much a part of it. I'm happy to go. I, I talk, give my talk. But I noticed that the Queer Student Alliance has boycotted the event, that in fact there is a phalanx of people from the Queer Student Alliance in the audience that are talking through my entire talk, and that one of them stands up, her voice trembling, I want to know why trans people were not represented here tonight, and what role they had, and why did you erase them from the history of marriage equality? So I said, well... I was very involved in that. And to be honest with you, I can't at the top of my head think of any particular trans person who I came across who was part of this or critical to this movement. There are very few of them, so it's not that's not weird. And secondly, I'm not trans. I'm sorry, I can't be trans. I didn't invite myself here. And she said, then she said, I should say he slash she said, it was not clear, I feel unsafe. At which point campus cops came down the side of the, the room then I did something truly outrageous, was I looked him, her in the face and said, good, that's why you're here in a university. You are supposed to be exposed to ideas and arguments and people that will make you feel unsafe because they challenge the assumptions and the boundaries you had growing up. Well, that created a fucking uproar. <laughs> I mean, that was like uh, the idea that 
a student should have to struggle or a student should actually feel bad sometimes or that or that education should be anything but a warm bath in your own prejudice and identity uh, was utterly strange to them. I, it's not like the lefties that I battled in the 90s, who, who however, they deployed this weapon of, of you're a racist, you're a white, well, now it's no longer racist, you're a white supremacist, everybody's racist, but you are a white supremacist. They nonetheless were not, could actually counter with arguments and would engage in to and fro and their views would be included in the media, but they would also be in a, at the New Republic. I, in some ways, if you look back at what I did there, it, was, it, it, it looks very similar. I had lots of members of minorities writing pieces challenging this orthodoxy, non-leftist minorities, but also plenty of material that would also be very consumable by left-wingers and, and liberals. So, uh, so I do think it's a cripple, emotionally, psychologically crippled generation that is essentially having a huge tantrum. And at some point, someone with authority has got to say, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Do you have any idea what oppression actually means? Do you have any idea how unbelievably privileged you are by any other context in history or geography? When tra a trans person says to me, I live under a constant oppression in the United States, even though they are protected under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and their agenda is, I'm like, have you ever been to Russia? Have you ever been to Zimbabwe? Have you ever been to China? Have you been anywhere else? You know, there's, these people actually believe that slavery as an institution was invented entirely by Americans, didn't exist before anywhere else, that it made us uniquely evil. And this means the whole place has to be systematically dismantled. They've never been taught anything else. They don't know anything else. They don't know history. They've never been exposed to an argument against them because that would upset them. And Lord, we can't upset these people. So we basically have a generation of uh, emotionally crippled young adults who cannot and do not have any emotional resilience. And if you are a member of a minority, you will always, by definition, be out of step with most people. Your, your experience will be different. There will be difficulties in that. People won't understand things you've gone through. And look, I'm in a million different minorities, weirdly. But I realized in my life that the only way that you will deal with this is if you develop emotional and psychological resilience yeah. to it. If you develop sufficient self-esteem that does not matter to you what others are saying about you or, or the identity you're about. The, the Eleanor Roosevelt belief, the essential belief that no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Mm -hmm. Why are these people consenting to this sense of inferiority? Absolutely. And as you say, that, that's something I've noticed too, is this craving for victimhood, this coveting of victimhood and this creation of victim identities, often from pure cloth. You know, I and it is often more pronounced on upper middle class campuses uh, than on than it is on on what we call red brick universities in the UK or former polytechnics, which tend to have more working class students. So when I speak at Oxford or Cambridge or Durham or some of these other places that have a very high intake of students from well-off backgrounds, that is very often where the craving for victimhood is most pronounced. And I have lost count of the number of very plummy 
very clever students I've encountered who tell me that they suffer from structural oppression, that they are being beaten down by society. And, you know, these are people at, at some of the most prestigious seats of learning on earth uh, who have perfectly comfortable lives, who are trying to convince someone that they are victims and it just doesn't wash at all. But you, you mentioned that you, you mentioned the, the trans pushback you had when you were given a, a talk on same sex marriage and you've had more pushbacks from trans uh, uh, people and trans activists since then, of course. I've had a similar experience myself and uh, lots of other people have too, if they raise any criticisms or questions at all about the idea of transgenderism or the excesses of the trans movement. And I wanted to ask you a couple of questions on this because I do think it's fascinating and it cuts to the heart of so much of uh, uh, the madness of our time, I suppose. But one thing that you said, which I think is a really important point, which is that in undermining the whole idea of biological sex and calling into question uh, biological reality, the trans movement is having a very harmful impact on those who whose identities and whose rights are based on the idea of sex. So, for example, same-sex attracted people, homosexuals, as they used to be called in the old days, uh, women, women do need some sex-based rights, some single-sex spaces. So to what extent do you see the trans movement as a regressive force that is undermining some of the great gains that were made in relation to gay rights and women's rights over the past 50 years? It's a really difficult topic for many different reasons. To be honest, I'm shocked to think that I in any way would be hostile to transgender people's rights, dignity, equality, and humanity. That's just not something I've ever said or believed. I absolutely believe that there are people whose sense of themselves is profoundly, not superficially, but profoundly and indelibly somehow in their brain a different sex than their body. And this is this is true. It exists in every culture in a way that homosexuality is also true. It turns out to be much, much less common than homosexuality. It's also associated in many cases with a great deal of stress and, and misery and unhappiness because that tension is a terrible tension to live with in a society where, where that basic idea is never questioned. And so the idea that I would be against trans rights are just beyond me. But that's because they've changed the argument. Mm. That's because they're not arguing that as transgender people, we should be treated as the sex we identify with, which I agree with in almost every single respect. I agree with, I would never misgender someone. I mean, occasionally, I'm, I've ne I don't think I ever have. And I, I, I'm not one of these people who doesn't know trans people, interact with trans people, or deal with trans people, or talk to trans people. I live in Provincetown for part of the year, for Christ's sake. But I can't at the same time believe that that condition is indistinguishable from that of a, someone who has never had a conflict between their sex and their gender, between their body and their mind, if you want to, want to say that, and that they are not just to be taken as their equal and put in the same category 
but that they are actually indistinguishable from yeah. actual women or actual men. I'm sorry, I can't, I, I'm, I can't, I can't say that because I don't believe it's true because I think it is self-evidently untrue. Why do you have to force us there? Why do you have to force us to say things that are not true? Even though we support everything that would protect you, respect you, and grant you humanity. Now, there are just, and the other weird thing about this is there's a few tiny little issues here. No conflicts, the vast majority of human experience. You could work somewhere as a transgender person, do your work, fine, no one discriminates you, blah, 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 blah. All that's great. But when the actual physiognomy, when the actual biology is relevant, which is not very often, to be honest, and I don't think it's even relevant in restrooms, because I, I just don't think people are actually flashing their genitals in restrooms in ways that would, and I, I don't have evidence that, that there's really been any abuse of this ability to walk into the restroom of your choice. I honestly don't think it's a huge issue. Uh, I think once you have stalls, you're fine. <laughs> but the question of sports is a question. And the question of terminology medically is also important. That, that they started by saying sex is different than gender, and they ended by saying gender replaces sex. And it's the second I won't acknowledge. Yeah. That's all. I won't acknowledge it. I won't say it. You know, I'm reminded of Orwell's dictum that, you know, the party's final command is for you to deny what is in front of your eyes. You know, and when you look at the Chappelle special, which I do urge people to watch because it's, it's, it's a, it's, I don't think it's his best, to be honest with you. I, I'm a big fan, but I don't think it was his best. But the essence of the disagreement is not his love or respect for trans people, which I think any reasonable person watching that would be completely persuaded by, but that he will not say that a vagina that has been constructed to look like a vagina is in every single way the same as a vagina. And he's right. It isn't. And it is something people talk about. It's not, it's kind of rude to bring it up. One doesn't want to bring it up. But if that's the insist, you're insisting, I believe that, then we have to bring it up because we have to make the counter argument. It'd be like me saying that I'm oppressed because uh, when I, how do I put this? When I have sex with my husband, he's never gotten pregnant. It's absolutely awful. And uh, I think denying that he might is, a, I mean, we're at that Jesuitical point. <laughs> uh, now, having been trained partly by Jesuits, I can see that. But again, why do we have to talk about this, really? Unless you are insisting that people have periods as opposed to women. Now, to take that particular issue, people with uteruses, non-prostate owners. These are, the, these are the new terms in which people are being deconstructed into parts in such a way that their sex is deconstructed and their, se and their gender is deconstructed. And that word I'm using deliberately because it's philosophically what's going on too. It is driven by a belief that we have to dismantle the language as well as we dismantle liberal society to destroy all categories that are fixed, uh, that might in any way be used as a means for enacting what they understand to be 
power structures. Now, quite how post-war, largely French, post-structuralist ideas are now dictating the public policy of traditionally liberal societies. <laughs> the vast majority of whom have not even heard of these people yeah. is quite a remarkable achievement of the far left. I mean, you've got to hand, this is Alinsky <laughs> was a smart guy and this is, they isolated where they can do this. They haven't gone to the masses. They're not going to, that's not, you need, a, you need the, the dictatorship of the proletariat. You need a vanguard. They find them in these schools. They slowly chase out everything else. They totally do not ever mention the other side of a topic. I can't tell you the number of times I've had conversations with people who are in gender theory or gender studies or queer studies. And I say, well, what about testosterone in the difference between men and women? They look at you as if they've never heard of this. <laughs> when you say, what about biology? Well, they say, well, biology is self a construct created by white men to oppress me. So I'm not going to accept that. Now they're being philosophically very coherent because this is what this is what the philosophical coherence of that worldview is, and they are visiting this worldview upon large numbers of majorities of people who actually grown up in reality. The vast majority of working class people, if you said to them, there are no differences between men and women, having lived their lives in which. That understanding has been a premise of almost every hour they have spent because it is the fruit of their entire physical human observation and experience. Yeah. Yeah. Just look at you as if you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> and why has this society not had the health and strength to say, you guys just need, you, first of all, you need some at this point mental health support. And secondly, you need to not be in these places where you think that's your role because that's threatening everybody else. Spiked is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all Spike's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spike team. So to never miss a thing, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. For me, that is the key issue with, I always make a distinction between trans people and the trans movement or the trans lobby, because I think most trans people want to live pretty normal life with all the freedoms and comforts the rest of us enjoy. And they have absolutely every right to that. Whereas the trans lobby is pushing us further down this road off what you talked about there, which is essentially this compulsion to lie that they are compelling us to say things that some of us don't believe to be true, that trans women are women, literally women, that you can change sex through a simple declaration, simply by clicking your fingers, all of these things which run counter to the reality of our eyes, the reality of our experience, the reality of thousands of years of scientific and social understanding. And it's that aspect of it that I have a, a genuine problem with, which I find very interesting and, and worrying. And th there's another component too, which is, as I said earlier, the impact it's having, the, the impact that that kind of campaigning, and again, it's it's a kind of campaigning that has been embraced by various institutions, the, the impact that that kind of campaigning is having on some of the very positive developments of the past 50 or 60 years. So if you look, for example, in, in, in the realm of gay rights, 
We have in the UK the LGB Alliance, which is a trans-skeptical pro-gay rights movement. And one of the issues they raise in relation to lesbians in particular is the fact, and I know that you and others have talked about this too, the fact that lots of young women, girls in fact, are now presenting themselves for transition essentially. Many of them are lesbians or, or, or are becoming lesbians and they are encouraged to transition or there's something about the social value attached to becoming a male, a, a, a trans male, that seems more attractive to them than being a kind of old-fashioned lesbian who loves other women. And there is this possibility that, you know, we are medicalizing lesbians out of existence. And also, there's a rehabilitation of homophobic attitudes, because if you look at the way some trans activists refer to same-sex attracted people, they will refer to it as genital fetishism. You know, why is a gay man obsessed with the genitals of the person he wants to sleep with? Or why is a lesbian obsessed with the idea that her lover has to have female genitalia? And it's almost like a rehabilitation of that disgust that people felt a, a, a long time ago for people who were same-sex attracted, but it's rehabilitated in the language of genital fetishism and transphobia and so on. So do you think there's a real possibility that gay rights and lesbian rights, which were hard fought for, could be undermined in the eyes of the, a new generation in particular by some of this campaigning? Yes, I'm worried. I'm not that worried <laughs> in the West, unless those of us who are gay and were campaigners and writers until five minutes ago, unless we capitulate to this. I mean, I, let me just make a point about that too, about the trans lobby itself. You know, I, I, I know that. And the truth is that like the media, the trans lobby has had very sane and a much braver people who came up and created these institutions. Like the major group in this country, in the U.S., uh, for transgender rights was led for a long time by a rather brilliant person um, who was ousted in a coup by the younger activists from the generation we're talking about. So it's not just a minority of actual trans people. It's also, uh, I think has been historically a minority within trans activists. Yeah. There was a liberal transgender movement not so long ago. Yeah. Of course, the problem is that in the United States and the United Kingdom, that has been solved. We have no discrimination laws. We have protections for transgender adults. We have, we're done. So they don't have any more. Part of it is also, what are you going to do now as a yeah. trans lobby if you've won basic rights? You have to kind of push the envelope even further if you're going to keep the funding coming in. And that's another, another issue here. On the question of whether it hurts, will hurt gay rights, I do think the, one of the things that gay people were often known for was our defense of free speech, that our experience as gay men and lesbians for many centuries gave us no, in this country, in the U.S., we had basically no protections except the First Amendment. They couldn't stop people producing magazines and newspapers for each other, even though they had to sometimes wrap them in brown paper, even though they, you know, they weren't porno. They were, they were, they were often, if you go back and read, and 
I sat one day and one few days in the New York Public Library and read the old issues of the Mattachine Review. Incredible. This is, this is way before Stonewall. Again, this is another lie that somehow this all happened only since 1969. Now, when was I? Now I'm going back into transition. But, but I do think that that ideology has come from the younger generation, not the older generation. And I do think that the people in general liked gay people in part because we were the ones that said, don't censor it. Yeah. We want to publish it. We want to put this show on. We want to say these naughty words. <laughs> we were always the rebels. And now we're the censors. Yeah. And not only that, it is not the spirit of gay people. It really isn't. This is alien to us. We are not the Puritans. We are the resistors to Puritanism. And it's absolutely horrifying to see this great culture of rebellion, revolt, and free speech turn into a fucking church. Uh, <laughs> now, that might, in the long run, poison the image and view of gay people. I mean, the, the, the one of the things that we did in my generation was to insist to straight people, we do not want to change your lives in any way. We don't. We want to join you properly. We are not hostile. Many of the things that you believe, we believe, to this particular moment where you're telling every man that they're not really a man and every woman that they're not really a woman, or these words themselves do not have meaning anymore. My deepest worry is, is the fact that, in fact, gay people are secure in a handful of countries in the West that they face real and brutal and horrifying oppression. Oppression, real fucking oppression around the world, whether that be in, you know, Saudi Arabia or Russia or God help us, Chechnya, whether it be in Central Africa, whether it be under Muslim, Iran. And this stuff, drag queen story out, the edge pushing of this is is being fed directly, first of all, into right-wing dark channels that really despise gay people. And it is being used to render other people's lives on this planet much more tenuous. I can't forgive that. It, 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 it makes me incredibly angry. Mm -hmm. The utter insouciance of what effect this, this shit might have on people living in real danger of their lives, the way in which it also alienates young gay and lesbian and trans people who, who might not feel in any way similar to this and are suddenly being told that, that that's what they have to be. And, and, and it, might, it might impede their self-confidence. What, what terrifies me above all is the, and again, it's so hard to know what's really going on. And this is, this is part of the problem. We're not in counseling sessions. We're not in medical appointments. We're not in these places where these decisions are being made. But children with gender dysphoria, which is feelings of unease or discomfort in their own sex, are not uncommon in everybody. At some point, some things happen. Most people not, but you'd be surprised. But among gay kids especially, and lesbian kids, it's particularly uh, a part of their attempt to understand who they are. I tell this story uh, 
to just to say what my fear is that I was once as a kid, I was about eight, my brother was four. And this is my memory of what happened, which is that he was playing around with a toy truck, bashing it into the wall, up the wall, whatever. He was having a good time. I was sitting there reading a book, not doing something <laughs> that uh, socially necessarily synonymous with masculinity. And my grandmother was in the room with my mother. And my grandmother looked at my brother and me and said to my mom, well, looking at my brother, well, at least now you have a real boy. Hmm. Now, that hits deep. The, the gay kids are fragile. They're hmm. figuring things out. It is quite suggestible to a young gay kid that maybe they were in the wrong body. Yeah. And the way in which this is being deconstructing sex altogether, thereby deconstructing homosexuality together, the impact on the very young is what worries me. Yeah. Because even if they've got bad ideas, eventually you would think, well, they would figure it out. And most kids would get gender dysphoria, figure it out over their lives. And generally, and this is what's interesting, it often resolves itself at puberty. It certainly did for me. I mean, I, I, mean, I, 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 no, I was never really insecure as a boy. I, I really wasn't. But I was aware that that was a question mark about me, and I wasn't quite sure how. But as soon as I hit puberty and I was given this amazing fucking gift, best thing ever happened to me, the, be the most pleasure I'd ever had in my entire life came <laughs> through puberty. <laughs> and I loved that. I didn't, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to let go of that. That was fucking great. I had no issues then. It was like, oh, this is what being a man is. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> uh, I can do this. I still have the small problem is I don't want to have sex with women. Well, I'll deal with that in a bit. But but this was great. Now, imagine a scenario in, in which that boy, in which I, for example, suddenly came home and the teacher told me this. All my friends are saying, saying this. And it's in TV. I'm probably a girl, mom. Yeah. And they decide that I'm, they don't do sufficient amount of mental health and background and they don't vet enough. And this is the, the key question. How carefully are they vetting? That's what I don't know. And I support care for trans kids who are genuinely need that care. I have, I have qualms about it, to be honest with you, but I think under responsible and careful there are people for whom puberty operates in a trans mind as something truly devastating and truly, and there are ways in which you just want to help the kid. And, it, and there are genuinely trans kids. So I'm not one of these people that just doesn't want to say this is always irrelevant. It is sometimes it's very relevant, but the possibility of that young boy deciding to become a girl put on puberty blockers so that his, his dick and balls, I, I'm, I'm tired of euphemisms. Uh, never develop. Mm. They remain a little boy is Willie all the way through 17, 18 years old. Uh, then they do cross sex hormones. He might figure out that he was more comfortable as a man and go through a terrible crisis. The one thing that he, that will be unavailable to him forever will be an orgasm or a child. Yeah. I, I don't know how anyone can justify. Mm. A child making a decision about something they have never experienced, have no understanding of, 
but actually is one of the things that makes life most worth living. I just don't know how a child can meaningfully consent to that. Yeah. And I don't think being concerned about that is being transphobic. I think being unconcerned about that is homophobic. Yeah. And I do not see why, and this is what worries me. So let's say that's happening. You would think that the trans movement would be incredibly worried about this. Who wants to have someone who isn't really trans transition? Who wants to make mistakes like this? Not only that, but these mistakes could lead to a backlash and prevent any treatment. So you would imagine the transgender movement would be calling for much greater vigilance, care, careful assessment, but they're not. Mm -hmm. They're actually arguing for the opposite, which makes me worry about their motives here. Yeah, that's a a very good and important point. And uh, the other thing you mentioned there was freedom of speech, of course, and the gay rights movement was known for its favor for freedom of speech, its countercultural tendencies at times, and its desire to publish things that were allegedly unpublishable or unfit for public consumption. And across the countercultural movement of the 50s and 60s and 70s, there was among the left, particularly on, on sections of the left, there was a, 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 an interest in freedom of speech and, and, a, and a belief that freedom of speech was, in many instances, the best tool that oppressed minorities had in order to make the case for their own freedom and to push forward the case for their freedom. That has changed, as you described, that has changed absolutely radically. And now, very often, uh, minority group movements are often best known for censorship rather than freedom of speech. The trans lobby is a very good example. Uh, there are sections of the gay rights movement which seem to be more interested in censorship of offence these days than protecting freedom of speech. There are other self-selected community groups, particularly in the UK. There are Muslim community groups who do not represent all Muslims by any stretch of the imagination, who are very interested in clamping down on so-called Islamophobia or any offence to Islam or any offence to the Prophet Muhammad and so on. So there, there has been this really palpable shift from uh, minority groups viewing the right to express oneself as a core component of their outlook to minority groups being more interested in clamping down on controversy and offence and anything which harms their identity or, or erases their identity, to use uh, the, the contemporary phrase. How problematic do you think that uh, this cavalier attitude to freedom of speech has become? I mean, for example, in the UK right now, we have Professor Kathleen Stock at Sussex University being harassed day in, day out because she has uh, expressed trans-skeptical views. There are gangs of students on campus who are posting threatening comments, putting up threatening posters. Uh, and she happens to be a lesbian. She's also a philosopher. She is a pretty progressive person. And there is this ferocious attempt to silence her and stop her from expressing herself. H how bad do you think the turn against freedom of speech has become? And how would you go about convincing some of these younger people that freedom of speech is actually pretty important? Uh, I would tell the story of the most successful civil rights movement of modern times. That's what I would do. Yeah. 
I would say that when I wrote The Case of Gay Marriage in 1989, it was regarded as a completely preposterous notion. I was told that it was the dumbest idea to come down the pike in forever. I told that on TV, I was dismissed. Because of a mischievous editor, Mike Kinsley wanted to stick it to the cons for their their double standards on marriage. And because of a young gay man who just was beginning to reimagine or trying to imagine a future, that came out. It was a piece of writing. It would, it was opposed at the time. I mean, the idea was as, as opposed by the queer left as it was by the religious right. Yeah. It, it violated taboos on both sides. And so it was under, in today's climate, that piece might never have run. We of all people, I just can't believe it. We are, there are so few of us actually. The only reason we've had our achievements, our civil rights gains is because of our speech rights. In the process of those speech rights, I also took the position along with my colleagues in this very nascent movement that was about five of us, that I would go on every single show. I would debate anyone, anywhere. I would go to fundamentalist churches. I would, I would go to Catholic colleges in order to have a civil debate to prove that we could talk about this. Because I genuinely believe that if we could argue this, my arguments were stronger than any they had. So why not want to have the debate? <laughs> you do that, you do it with a certain amount of generosity and a certain amount of civility, and you do that from the ground up, and you're genuine in your views, and you invite and respect the opinions of those you disagree with, urge them to come together and have, a, have an argument with you. When I produced a, my anthology on same-sex marriage, I included pros and cons. I published Bill Bennett. I published uh, some of the most right-wing religious figures because I thought I because I thought their arguments were weak, but I found the best and I put them in there. That's a liberal spirit, and that liberal spirit achieved an extraordinary thing in a, one generation. It changed people's minds because they could see that it was in the public sphere. We weren't afraid. We weren't bullying. We were talking. And they actually listened, and some of them just thought, well, that's a pretty good point. Maybe, yeah, I can see that, and got used to it. And I look at it today, and I'm like, who are you trying to win over? Who are you trying to persuade? And you realize they're not actually trying to persuade anyone. Yeah. They're trying to bully people. I just ask you to think of the extraordinary paradox that the gay person, the person, it almost makes me emotional to say this, the people most fucking bullied growing up inflict that on others. It just, it just, it, it makes me as, as upset as I am angry about it. It's, and it's, and it's because they've lost their way. They've lost their way and they can't see out of it. I'm not, I'm angry, but I'm also sad that that's how they feel. I'm also, to be honest with you, because I'm part of this generation that did this work and did it while we were also dying, to have the current generation treat our work as if it's irrelevant, meaningless, and insufficient. Mm. 
the contempt for us mm. from this younger generation, the absolute lack of any respect for the movement we led, the way we conducted it, or the successes we had. It takes my breath away. Those are um, very powerful words. And it brings me on to my final question. Well, actually, I have a thousand questions, but alas, we are running out of time. So my final question for you in relation to the various things we've been talking about, the various things you've been writing about brilliantly over the past few years, and in and following on from that point about freedom of speech, I wanted to ask you, to what extent do you think woke culture or whatever we're supposed to call it, it can be very difficult to know what to call this current climate, this current political atmosphere. To what extent do you think it represents an assault on the gains of Western civilization themselves? You know, the, the, not only the, the leaps forward that have been made over the past 50 or 60 years in relation to certain rights and certain liberties and certain equal rights too, but also the foundation stone of enlightened, civilized Western culture. So, for example, you've written recently about how there is now a turn against the classics, you know, the um, uh, as you describe it, the unbearable whiteness of the classics. Apparently the classics are too white. There is currently a bit of a woke crusade against classical music on the basis that classical music is too white. It's an expression of white supremacy. We see numerous efforts to decolonize the curriculum, which very often looks like an effort to get rid of certain established, brilliant authors and replace them with other authors who are often very good and some who are less good. But there is this, there does, does seem to be this drive against uh, the, the, the great liberal cultural achievements of Western society. Do you think that's that underlies a lot of the stuff we're talking about. And if that's the case, aren't we facing a pretty big problem in Western society right now? We are. The most sobering texts on this question, I would say, are in Aristotle's and Plato's understandings of democracy, which they regarded as a pretty awful thing. <laughs> I mean, this is a very big topic, Brendan. I, I, I don't know where to start on this, but because it's, it's such a huge topic. But, but if you understand democracy as being a culture that cannot tolerate inequality, it finds any disparate outcomes to be a form of injustice. It requires an absolute horizontality of all human relations and a breaking down of all hierarchies. That is what it's about. Socrates says through Plato, that eventually this hatred of authority and of hierarchy, which is part of what democracy is about, more people, everyone's equal, those kind of things, leads to things like children dictating to parents, younger generations dictating to older generations. It comes to people not seeing a distinction between foreigner and citizen. It is, it sees no difference between men and women. And in fact, this is all in the Republic, <laughs> written 2,500 years ago, <laughs> that this is the very nature of it, that it, it, and that it, and it has a process. It has a, there is a cycle of these things. And if you read Plato's account of late stage democracy, it's, it's chillingly opposite to where we are. 
the, the mind that comes from the hatred of excellence because it might mean inequality. The kind of mind that, that is furious that some groups do not have equal rights, but wants to destroy the system that created the whole concept of civil rights in the first place. Mm. They don't have that option in, in Poland. They don't have that option. I mean, they originally, they don't, I mean, this is, we in the West, we created the system that worked. And of course, the, the Constitution of the United States, as the Democrats are now complaining about, is essentially the founders bet that they could construct a system with so many hierarchies in it and boundaries within it that it would restrain this democracy to make a republic sustainable so that it would have enough hierarchies built into it, enough protections in it, that the mob could not overwhelm it. And But they also thought it was you know, a question of time whether that would work. The question is then, what does it become next? And for Plato and Aristotle, it was always, um, oh, it, it, it inevitably ends in dictatorship. This is, this is how tyranny comes about because people get so disgusted with the collapse of standards that in fact, no one can reach a consensus because everyone's view is equally valid. So you can't do anything, uh, you can't agree on anything, that there, and then they leverage hostility towards elites, any elites, and seek to overturn the elites uh, that they don't, they despise. And, and they pick a man to do that, a sort of strong man, man on a white horse comes in. Uh, I mean, this is such a strong parallel to the Trump period and phenomenon, the evolution of the left prompting this really dark authoritarianism on the right in this country. That's a dynamic that, that is only, only made more chilling the more you read the ancients on the dynamics of, of policies. And that's what makes any position like yours or mine, certainly in America right now, I don't think, it, I don't think it's as bad in England uh, at all. But what do you do when you have to choose between those things? That's the question. Last time I picked Biden, I picked Hillary before that, because in my head, I really do despise tyranny and I do despise authoritarianism and I want to save the Republic. On the other hand, when the alternative of that is also undermining the Republic's very intellectual, psychological foundations, then you're just put in this excruciatingly difficult position. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.